Hello, and welcome to the CBP podcast for April 2009. I'm Dr. Deed Harrison, and I will be your host for this podcast. In this presentation, I would like to discuss with you two primary topics. The first topic I'd like to discuss is the cervical lordosis in health and disease. And there's a reason I would like to present this in this uh, current podcast. There's an issue that just recently came about that affects all of us in chiropractic that we need to be made, made aware of. And the second topic of the day actually is relevant to the first topic, and it is the CBP semi-annual conference to be held April 18th and 19th in Salt Lake City, Utah at the downtown Hilton. So these are our two topics uh, for this presentation, and I'll be right right back with you after this break from our sponsors. Thank you. This segment is brought to you by Posture Code Developers, the new X-ray digitizing software known as Posture Ray. For more information on Posture Ray, please browse to www.posturco.com. Welcome back. For the first topic, I'd like to discuss the cervical lordosis in health and disease. In my opinion, the majority of chiropractors adhere to the paradigm that the cervical lordosis is an important health outcome for patients presenting to a chiropractic facility, or for that matter, for anybody in in the human population. That being said, most chiropractors, in my experience, would assess the cervical curve with spinal radiography and attempt to determine the state of the cervical lordosis. Either it's hypolordotic, it's straightened, it has S-curves, or it's a reverse cervical curve, and then we would determine if this correlated to the presenting condition of the patient. The problem is right now that this very paradigm that many of us hold to be true is being vehemently challenged by certain factions of the chiropractic profession. And the problem is these certain factions of the chiropractic profession have quite a, a political pull and in fact are strongly connected to the insurance industry which of course determines whether or not uh, chiropractors and their patients will be reimbursed for care dictated towards rehabilitation of the cervical lordosis. Now I'm not saying that every patient's problem is due to an abnormality of the cervical curve. However, I am suggesting that there's ample evidence to suggest that there is a strong connection between pain syndromes and a variety of functional deficits in patients and those things as they correlate to the cervical lordosis. Something that just recently came out that challenges the cervical lordosis as an important outcome in chiropractic came from the CCGPP. They just came out with their neck pain chapter. And I'd like to read you a quote from the CCGPP neck pain uh, uh, guideline committee chapter. Here's the quote. The team was asked to examine whether loss or reversal of the sagittal curve of the cervical spine and treatments directed at this should be considered. 
The team discussed this and determined that because there is no evidence that alterations in the cervical curve have a relationship with neck pain and related disorders, this finding would not be considered a neck-related disorder, and thus this will not be included in the, in the current chapter." End quote. Now that's from the CCGPP, who were commissioned by COXA, the Congress of Chiropractic State Associations, to compile all the relevant data in chiropractic on a variety of health disorders, one of them being neck pain in this case. And this uh, committee is writing sets of guidelines that will be in the hands of insurance uh, parties and third-party payers within likely the, the year. Now this information is going to f affect all of us. What's happening is insurance companies will, will get this information handed to them and that they then they will start to limit chiropractic care that's directed towards rehabilitation of abnormal cervical curvatures. For example, we, we already see this happening in certain managed care organizations where uh, chiropractic biophysics technique, uh, NUCA technique, uh, uh, different uh, other techniques that uh, utilize uh, spinal x-rays to assess a, a, a patient's uh, state of their spine. The, these types of chiropractic techniques are being described as experimental and non-evidence based and thus practitioners that utilize these techniques uh, will not a become providers for the, this these third-party uh, companies and then their care will not be reimbursed now obviously these techniques have a wealth of, of data on them that I'll discuss uh, in the second topic but the main issue is that this CCGPP committee has based their statement on flawed information that exists in the literature and in fact they decided not to review all the relevant data instead what they did is they referred to a recent publication in the journal of manipulative and physiological therapeutics that came out at the end of 2008 and this publication was by Christensen and Hartvigsen where these authors decided to do a systematic literature review on the, the sagittal plane curves as they relate to any health condition that a population might present with. Now the problem with the Christensen paper in JMPT is that it's an extremely selective literature review. For example, concerning just the cervical spine, when I read their paper, and I had a couple colleagues read it with me, Dr. Joe Betts, Dr. Paul Oakley, and Dr. Joe Ferrantelli, we determined that Christensen et al. only reviewed 26% of the available literature on the cervical lordosis as it relates to, to any pain or dysfunction in a patient population in the literature. In fact, they ignored 17 papers and of the 17 papers that they ignored which was 74 percent of the literature on the topic these 17 papers all 
found a correlation, a statistically significant correlation, between the cervical lordosis and a variety of pain disorders and health disorders. So what, what we see is the CCGPP committee relying on one paper in the literature that was flawed to come to the conclusion that the cervical lordosis is not an important health outcome. And again, keep in mind that this neck pain guideline put out by the CCGPP committee will be in the hands of insurance companies and third-party uh, payers and managed care organizations with, within the year. What's going on is the CCGPP expects that the chiropractic profession will just lay down and roll over and believe whatever they say. Well, fortunately, people like me, we don't believe anything anybody says. We, we check things out on our, on our own, and we do literature reviews on our own, and we find out that, yeah, the, these people have twisted the evidence. So what I'd like to do is present a few papers that uh, the CCGPP committee chose to ignore because Christensen et al. chose to ignore them. First, what I'd like to do is uh, start with the paper by Hull, and Hull, in the Journal of Bone and Joint Surgery in 1974, did a study on 146 subjects that were exposed to a motor vehicle collision. These people had no pre-existing cervical, uh, cervical spine degenerative joint disease, and what Hull wanted to do is, is identify if there were certain exam findings and x-ray findings that would correlate to poor outcomes at a minimum of, of a five-year follow-up. So he took 146 subjects and followed them for five years. What he found was immediately after the injury, numbness or pain in the upper extremity correlated to a poor outcome at five-year follow-up. Also, degenerative joint disease in the cervical spine that was present at the five-year follow-up correlated to a poor outcome. However, important to this topic here is that Hull also found that a sharp reversal of the cervical lordosis in these people was correlated to a poor outcome at five-year follow-up. This was again in the Journal of Bone and Joint Surgery 1974 volume 56A. Apparently the CCGPP committee and Christensen et al. didn't think that the whole paper was uh, worth worthy of uh, including into their systematic literature review. The next paper comes from the Journal of Bone and Joint Surgery in 1983 by Norris and Watt. This is uh, volume 65B pages 608 through 611. Here they took 61 motor vehicle collision patients and followed them for a minimum of six months. They broke these subjects into three groups. Group 1 had symptoms after the accident in their neck but no positive physical exam findings. Group 2 had symptoms in their neck with the positive exam finding of reduced range of motion and group 3 had symptoms in their neck with positive exam findings of decreased range of motion and neurological deficit in a dermatomal and radicular distribution. So we we have three different groups with increasing severity of injury. What they found was 
pre-existing degenerative changes as identified on the x-ray, no matter how slight they were, were related to an adverse prognosis at six-month minimum follow-up. Also, abnormal cervical spine curvatures were much co more common in patients in group 2 and group 3 with poor outcomes than they were in group 1. So what we've, we've found here in this particular paper is that loss of the cervical curve correlates with long-term pain and impairment following a motor vehicle collision. Again, this was ignored by the CCGPP and it was ignored by the uh, Christensen et al. paper in JMPT. For the third paper uh, I would like to present, uh, it is another whiplash uh, paper. This came out in the Journal, Journal of Spinal Disorders in 2001 by Kai et al., K-A-I. And this was volume 14, pages 487 through 493. This is a, a prospective study of 110 patients in an attempt to study the relationship of post-car crash neurogenic thoracic outlet syndrome and its relationship to a cervical kyphosis. They broke their subjects into two groups those subjects that developed post-crash neurogenic thoracic outlet syndrome and those subjects who did not develop neurogenic thoracic outlet syndrome. Their findings are highly statistically significant. They found strong differences in the, the incidence or actually the prevalence, excuse me, of cervical kyphosis in the two groups where 44 to 46% of the patients with neurogenic thoracic outlet syndrome had a cervical kyphosis following the crash whereas only 11 to 24 percent of the subjects without neurogenic thoracic outlet syndrome had a cervical kyphosis and the percentages are based on uh, the the range in percentages is based on the group being studied and the measurement of, of cervical kyphosis being used so again, the authors conclude in this particular paper that a reverse cervical lordosis is an abnormal finding on x-ray and it is associated with future disability after whiplash. It was a minimum of a one-year follow-up in this prospective study. For the fourth paper, again, it, it is a, uh, a motor vehicle collision uh, paper. This one came out in 2002 out of the journal Emergency Radiology by Giuliano and colleagues. It was in volume 9, pages 249 through 253. Here what they did is they studied a true asymptomatic uh, control group with 100 subjects and then they identified 100 subacute whiplash injured, injured subjects that fit their study inclusion criteria. They assessed these subacute patients at 12 to 14 weeks to negate the possible effect of muscle spasm on the cervical curve. They assessed the cervical curve via MRI in this particular paper. So we have a subacute whiplash population and a true control population. Only 4% of the control group was found to have an abnormal reduced cervical lordosis 
whereas 98% of the subacute whiplash group at 12 to 14 weeks was found to have an abnormal reduced cervical lordosis. That's 98%. That's a huge statistically significant finding. But I guess the CCGPP committee and the Christensen et al. paper decided this study was not worthy of inclusion into their systematic literature review. Another paper I'd like to address uh, is by Griffiths et al. And the Griffiths paper came out in Skeletal Radiology in 1995, volume 24, pages 263 through 266. Now this particular paper is also on a, a, a post-traumatic uh, rear-end collision uh, population. What they did is they took 40 subjects with a mean age of about 32, 15 women, or excuse me, 15 men and 25 women, and they compared this group to 105 control subjects who were aged 34 years old, where we had 43 men and 62 women. They took neutral films and they took flexion extension films in an attempt to see if cervical lateral radiography could discriminate between the car crash group and the control group. Their finding is very important because this paper was one of the first that I've ever been able to find in 1995 that looked at sensitivity and specificity of their results. In other words, they looked at uh, true positives, false positives, true negatives, and false negatives. And what they did is they looked at segmental angulation as well as spinous process fanning. They found out that anybody that had a segmental angle on their lateral cervical x-ray of greater than 10 degrees of flexion, that number, 10 degrees of flexion at any segmental level, could discriminate between the car crash group and the control group. It had a sensitivity of 81% and a specificity of 76.3%. Now this is a, a critically important finding because we don't just see that the the mean value of the angle of the net curve can discriminate between the two groups. We're actually looking at the the ability of this one number 10 degrees of a segmental flexion to be able to discriminate accurately between the subjects. And sensitivity and specificity is a much more sophisticated analysis than, for example, a simple p-value comparing group means. So again, we find out that a, a segmental flexion angle, either on a lateral, neutral lateral, or a flexion film of 10 degrees or more can discriminate between a rear-end collision subject and a control subject. But of course, uh, the theme of this presentation is that the CCGPP committee and the Hart, uh, the Christensen paper and JMPT didn't think that this paper should have uh, been included in, in their reviews. For the sixth paper that I'd like to address, shifting gears, moving away from the motor vehicle collision uh, papers and population, lest somebody think that that's the only um, topic that there's evidence for, I'd like to talk about kinematics and lordosis. In 2002, a paper by Takashima in Spine came out. This paper was volume 
27 pages E means online only E348 through E355 here they looked at five groups of subjects that were matched for age weight height sex and pain and they they broke their groups up depending on the state of the cervical lordosis group one was a lordotic neck group two was a straight neck group three was a complete kyphotic or reverse neck group four had an s-curve with a lower cervical reversal and group five had an s-curve with an upper cervical reversal the primary purpose of this investigation was to see if there is a difference in functional kinematics of the cervical segments during flexion extension of the cervical spine with different types of neck curves so they're trying to identify do different neck curves correlate to alterations in functional segmental range of motion and what they found is yes indeed abnormalities of the cervical lordosis are linked to abnormalities in functional segmental range of motion and to quote their conclusion alterations in static alignment of the cervical curvature causes alterations in the dynamic kinematics of the cervical spine during cervical flexion and extension end quote so here we find a study showing that abnormal cervical lordosis and cervical curvatures correlate to functional deficits and so we see that structure is related to function now most of us would suggest that that's just a, a, a fact that we don't need to test but of course researchers would like to test that apparently though the CCGPP committee and the Christensen et al paper in JMPT didn't think that uh, functional abnormalities of cervical joints and flexion extension uh, are significant enough to to include this paper the last paper that I'd like to talk about, and then we'll take a brief break, is the paper by Stemper et al. in the Journal of Biomechanics. This paper came out in 2005, and it was pages uh, 1313 through 1323. Now, the Stemper paper is is a pretty cool paper. It it is going to relate to the topic of motor vehicle collisions. But it, but it really applies to just biomechanics of the cervical curve itself. What, what they did was they developed a sophisticated model of the cervical spine where they put individual subject characteristics into this model. They were looking at the sagittal plane. And what they did is they exposed this cervical model to rear-end collisions simulating uh, a rear-end car crash where the the, uh, the model was exposed to about 2.6 meters per second of impact velocity and was uh, or experienced from that a 2.3 g mean acceleration now the important thing here is what they did is they took the same subject characteristics in their model but they altered one important feature of the model and that was the cervical lordosis they studied the model under three different test conditions. The first test condition is a cervical lordosis. The second test condition is a military or straight neck. And the third test condition was a complete kyphotic neck. What they were looking at is 
they were looking at the strains experienced by the different ligaments in the cervical spine and specifically in the cervical facet caps or ligaments. Their findings are critically important. They found that in straightened and kyphotic necks, the facet caps or ligaments, specifically at C5-C6, had an increased longitudinal or long axis strain of 73% compared to the neutral position for the cervical lordosis. They suggested that this increased 73% of longitudinal strain is enough to cause micro tears in the human facet caps or ligament. And obviously, we know that the, the facet caps or ligament is one of the primary suspects linked to chronic uh, cervicogenic pain in motor vehicle collision subjects. So what we're finding is uh, modeling studies can, can identify that abnormal cervical curves can predispose a subject to facet capsule or, facet capsule or joint ligament injury if they experience a rear-end car collision. In other words, the cervical curve is protective or preventive of injury to the ligaments. This suggests that we might want to screen people that are asymptomatic and check to see if they have a cervical curve or if they have a kyphotic neck or a military neck. The subjects that have a kyphotic neck and a military neck would be at high risk of injury according to the Stemper uh, study should they get in a car crash. Of course, you know, you, you probably don't want to uh, look at this information any further because according to the CCGPP committee and Christensen at all, this, this paper wouldn't have any significance to uh, human health and, and injury, right? Of course, I'm being facetious. Um, okay, what I'd like to do now is, is take a brief break for our sponsors, and I'll be back to uh, summarize this topic, and then we'll move on. Thank you for your attention. Receive regular CBP research updates as well as seminar happenings and other chiropractic news by subscribing now to the CBP email newsletter right on the home page at www.idealspine.com. Welcome back. We, we just did a, a brief overview of six or seven key papers finding a positive correlation between abnormal cervical lordosis and neck pain arm pain, functional abnormalities, and injury. I didn't go through all the, the literature on the topic, but I, I just went through a, a few key papers to show that the Christensen paper and the CCGPP committee have ignored a, a, a very large amount of, of data on this topic. And by doing so, they're attempting to restrict chiropractic treatment dictated towards rehabilitation of the cervical lordosis. And in my opinion, this is a direct preconceived agenda. It's not an accident. These people, in my opinion, are trying to do this and they set out to do it. Otherwise, I don't see how this would have happened. To conclude this topic, I, I would like to share with you some information about the Christensen et, et al. paper and how this, this paper was manufactured to find a finding that I think they wanted to find. And of course, this is my opinion on the topic. 
the authors chose to rate papers in an arbitrary manner and they developed a four-point rating scale. Now I'm not going to go through each one of the points but what I do want to do is cover one of the points where they have misrated a couple papers. Now th this is their rating for statistical analysis in each paper. One out of their four points was given only if a paper included an odds ratio as a type of statistical analysis. Now an odds ratio is a way that we can compare two proportions statistically. It is different than comparing the mean value of a certain variable between the two groups. And it's actually a little more sophisticated than comparing the mean value. However, it's not the most sophisticated way to compare a variable and that variable's distribution between two groups. For example, receiver operating characteristic curves called rock curves are a way that we can analyze a given variable's ability to discriminate between two populations, either a condition group or a group without the condition. And rock curves look at sensitivity and specificity or false positives, false negatives, true positives, and true negatives. And what we, when we do this, we find can the variable actually accurately discriminate between the two groups? And of course, we're looking at can this identify true positives and true negatives? And can this minimize false positives and false negatives? Well, the Christensen et al. review decided that rock curve analysis wasn't good enough for them. Of course, it's good enough for the world of statistics, and, and it's superior in many aspects to an odds ratio. It wasn't good enough for the Christensen et al. paper. The reason this is important is the paper that we did in 2004 in Spine, looking at the cervical lordosis differences between three groups of subjects, neck pain, acute, and neck pain chronic, and normal, we identified that the cervical lordosis, several of the variables had good sense of sensitivity and good specificity to discriminate between the groups. Specifically, the cervical lordosis measured from C2 to C7 using the posterior vertebral body lines, C2 to C7, that value less than 29 degrees statistically discriminated between neck pain or acute neck pain and normal subjects. That same variable less than 20 degrees statistically discriminated between chronic neck pain and normal. Well Christensen et al. rated that paper in 2004 only a 3 out of 4 so they did not rate it highly. They took away a point because in that in our Spine 2004 paper we didn't report odds ratios. However, we reported a, a superior type of statistical analysis. Now this is an important finding in the Christensen paper because had they rated the Harrison paper in 2004 as a 4 out of 4 then that would have meant two papers would have been rated four out of four by the Christensen paper and by their own design 
if a topic had two papers that were highly rated where there was a positive correlation between the cervical curve and that condition then it would have been considered to have good evidence that the cervical lordosis was linked to that condition. In other words, there should have been two papers that were rated four out of four finding that the cervical lordosis is positively, positively correlated to neck pain, both acute and chronic. So you, you can see just by this brief analysis of the paper that I, in my opinion, there was an agenda here. And it's no coincidence that a few months later, out comes the CCGPP Neck Pain Task Committee referencing the Christensen JMPT paper in November, December 2008 to claim that they don't have to look at the evidence. It's already been reviewed by Christensen et al. And there's no evidence that the cervical lordosis correlates to any condition. Thus, chiropractors should not be taking lateral cervical curves on their patients and claiming that the curve might, in fact, correlate to their pain, disability, disease, or future health status. So you can see the issues that we're facing here as a profession. This is a really serious thing. I would bet that over 50% of us in chiropractic would take a lateral cervical x-ray and we would use that as one of the one of the diagnoses that could correlate to a patient's presentation. Of course, that's individual based on the individual patient, but I would believe that, that that's a correct statement, that the majority of us still do that. And then the majority of us would want to do something to rehabilitate the cervical curve should we have that as our, our working diagnosis. Okay, I'm going I'm to take a brief break here before we go into the second topic, which is the CVP semi-annual conference that's April 18th and 19th. And we'll find out that this conference directly relates to the information that I've just been talking about. Okay, so time for a brief sponsor break. Thank you for your attention. Talk to you in a minute. This podcast is brought to you by PostureCode, developers of the Posture Screen and Posture Ray software suites. For more information, browse to www.posturecode.com. Welcome back. For the second and final topic, I would like to present the, the topics that will be presented at the CBP semi-annual conference April 18th and 19th in just about two and a half weeks in Salt Lake City, Utah at the downtown Hilton. Now, this conference is going to be presenting two recent guidelines in the profession that both my father and I were part of a team that spearheaded these. The first guideline is the PCCRP X-ray guidelines. Now, we started this back in 2005 and 2006, but we went through a very long review process and, and redrafting of, of the guideline. And we're now ready to release that guideline or to to show the final draft. Uh, the guideline has been uh, recently submitted to the National Guideline Clearinghouse, and it's in review there. We don't know if the guideline is going to be 
accepted there or listed there, but we're confident that it should be. Um, it's a very comprehensive guideline, and we followed all the requirements and then some of uh, guideline development. Now, these guidelines are important for every chiropractor that utilizes spinal radiography as one of the assessment tools for a patient's spine. And I still believe that's the majority of us. E even though our chiropractic education in the last five years has tried to shift away from spinal radiography as an assessment of the spine, the majority of chiropractors are still utilizing this as an assessment tool to develop a, a diagnosis and determine the state of the spine and to, to reliably quantify vertebral subluxation from a mechanical point of view. These guidelines cover every facet of spinal radiography in chiropractic from uh, the views we take to the, the measurements we use, their reliability, their validity, and then in part how we use that information to dictate care and decide care. The interesting thing about these guidelines is we opened it up for review for about two years and over a thousand practicing chiropractors reviewed the guidelines and the majority of them over 90 percent strongly agreed with the different guideline components. The other thing that's of importance with these x-ray guidelines is that all the techniques that utilize spinal x-ray, spinal radiography as a subluxation assessment tool agreed with the guidelines and agreed to endorse and adopt the guidelines as their technique guidelines. That, that's incredible for techniques to come together on this type of level. Techniques like uh, CBP, Pettibon, Gonstead, uh, upper cervical techniques, the majority of them, from Sweat to Blair to the uh, National Upper Cervical Society to the Pierce technique. Uh, you get my point. All these techniques are backing these guidelines. The other important thing is that major political organizations in our profession are backing these guidelines. The ICA, the International Chiropractors Association, are strongly backing these and have adopted these as their official association x-ray guidelines. The WCA has adopted the PCCRP as their association guidelines for x-ray. The Federation of Straight Chiropractors, the FSCO, has adopted the PCCRP guidelines. What that does is that indicates the level of, I think, comprehensiveness of these guidelines where all techniques or the majority of techniques that use x-ray and several of, of the major associations in our profession can agree to back these guidelines. Importantly, the, the biomechanical definitions and descriptions of vertebral subluxation as presented in the guideline have also been adopted by these same organizations and by these same chiropractors. The reason being is we reviewed the literature on biomechanical definitions of 
vertebral subluxation from a displacement or a mechanical point of view. And we developed six categories, six different categories of spine displacement. Everything from a segmental subluxation within the range of motion of a joint to scoliosis and instability of a segment of the spine is covered under these six definitions. To learn about these definitions, I, I would hope and ask that you would come to the CBP semi-annual conference where these x-ray guidelines will be detailed. Also at the conference, what we'll do is we'll make these guidelines available. We're printing 30 to 40 of these guidelines in hard textbook bound form where with a small donation to the research the research organization that has spearheaded these guidelines you can receive the guideline as a complimentary gift but you, you have to donate to the nonprofit foundation where we're funding these guidelines okay the the second guideline that will be discussed and made available at the CBP semi-annual conference is the ICA best practices. Now th this is a monumental work that was developed by several chiropractors but really spearheaded by my father Dr. Don Harrison and Dr. Len Siskin and Dr. Joe Betts. They, they set out to review all the chiropractic literature that is in existence not just randomized trials, not just selective studies, but all the chiropractic studies that have been put forth by our profession. As long as that was a treatment study. To that end, about 1,400 different papers were reviewed from a single case report up to a randomized trial. The papers were read and rated and developed into a guideline. Techniques are included as long as they have at least one publication in the peer-reviewed sciences or in a textbook format, as long as that textbook has clinical outcome evidence for the technique treatment in different patient conditions and populations. So all techniques were included. They're, they're, they were not limited. As long as there was information on them, they were included in the ICA best practices. Also, what was included is any type of condition that a patient had, not just neck pain and back pain, like you see in some of these recent guidelines. For example, the CCGPP looking at neck pain and back pain and trying to uh, suggest that chiropractic should be you know, back pain specialists and, and neck pain specialists. Of course, they do have a... a, a a part of their guideline that looks at uh, visceral conditions but it's certainly not as comprehensive as the the uh, part of that that's in the ICA guidelines for example we identified approximately 330 different conditions that have been reported in the literature to respond positively to different types of chiropractic care that's over 330 conditions that's not just back and neck pain so the, these guidelines are a monumental task. They will impact every chiropractor because it supports what we do as chiropractors day to day. You're not limited by what was published in a randomized trial. The guidelines actually try to account for 
a real patient as they would present to a real chiropractor. For example, confounding conditions are included in, in the ICA best practice guidelines. If a patient comes in with multiple conditions and with degenerative joint disease, with high blood pressure, spine conditions, and neurologic deficits, etc., that person would be at much higher risk and likely slower to respond to chiropractic care to where a 6 to 12 visit uh, limited model wouldn't be appropriate for that patient. So that's, that's just a brief taste of what the guidelines will prevent, uh, present. What I'm asking you to do is to do your part and come to the CBP semi-annual where we can discuss these two guidelines in detail. And we'll spend approximately four to six hours on each guideline. We'll go through the key topics in detail and we'll make the guidelines available in textbook format for donation to the research organization, or excuse me, the nonprofit organization that really funded these guidelines. Um, so I, I hope that uh, you you will be there and you'll support us in this endeavor. In, in Denver, excuse me, I'm a little congested. Um, what we need to do with these uh, guidelines is every five years we will need to reevaluate and reassess them and resubmit them to the National Guideline Clearinghouse where they are in review. And again, we're hopeful that these two guidelines, the ICA Best Practices and the PCCRP X-ray Guidelines, uh, will be accepted and listed at the National Guideline Clearinghouse. And if and when they do, then five years from now we have to go through this process again, and that's monetary and time-consuming. Um, we hope, though, that it's going to have a positive impact on the chiropractic profession, and we've already seen it do so. Uh, so it, anyway, without further ado, uh, that that's the topic for uh, this uh, month's podcast, and I look forward to seeing all of you at the April CBP semi-annual if you're willing to come and uh, help us out and, and learn about these guidelines. Thank you for your time and your attention, and I wish you the best in 2009. Thank you for listening to the CBP podcast series. My name is Dr. Joe Ferrantelli. And before I close, I just wanted to update uh, all of you that I've placed some uh, video clips on the new X-ray digitizing software known as PostureRay on the PostureCo website. You can also find those on YouTube as well. Uh, many of you have uh, these these questions about how to use the software and whether or not you have to use digital uh, systems or how to obtain the X-rays. So. I made a couple sample clips that will definitely answer your questions, so be sure to browse to www.postraco.com. Thanks, and see you next time.